This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. Today I hope to give an overview of mandala making, how it became a therapeutic modality and its potential contribution to your wellness and self-care. At the end of my presentation today, I've listed a number of books that may help people that are interested in learning more about the topics that I'll be discussing. And if any of you listening might be interested in attending a Mandala workshop, you're welcome to contact me at the email address that I've listed here on the slide. So let's get started with an important definition. Mandala is a Sanskrit word for sacred circle. And mandalas have been used in the spiritual traditions of India for thousands of years to represent the wholeness and vitality of the cosmos as well as the self. However, mandalas also appear across many different religions and cultures throughout the world, and they're usually associated with spiritual, mystical, or healing energies. I've shown here in this slide just a few of the many mandalas that can be found throughout different world cultures. And what you'll notice is that the pattern within a mandala is usually balanced and harmonious, symbolizing our ideal relationship to the cosmic totality. The Sri Yantra mandala, which is shown here, is a very ancient mandala found throughout India, Nepal, and Tibet. It's estimated to be at least 5,000 years old. In the middle, the PowerPoint of Bindu represents the cosmic center and pure consciousness. The intersecting triangles are organized in five concentric levels and represent the totality of the manifest cosmos. The triangles are circumscribed by three concentric circles, which represent infinite cycles of time. Mandalas like the Sri Yantra are used in yogic meditation to cultivate self-awareness and to help unite the fragmentary sense of self that tends to develop amidst the tensions and struggles in the outer world. So just to give an example of how this might work in yogic meditation, we would gaze at this mandala, bringing our attention to the center point, which represents pure consciousness. And then gradually, we allow our awareness to extend outwards from the center, expanding into those layers of complex triangles, which represent the many facets and dualities of the cosmos. We continue to expand our awareness even further out beyond the cycles of time into the vastness of the cosmos. And then we start to bring our awareness inward from the perimeter towards the center, integrating and concentrating the cosmic elements back into a single point of awareness. This practice helps us put our ego consciousness in proper relationship with the totality we reconnect with our center of awareness, our ground of serenity, and in doing so, the fragmentary sense of self may heal, which in turn allows us to function within the world in a more balanced and peaceful way. As ancient as the Sri Yantra Mandala is, ritually created circular forms appear to date back to the dawn of humankind. Moreover, there are often striking similarities in the circular symbols carved or painted onto rock surfaces quite remote from one another geographically, culturally, and across time. So for example, here are two petroglyphs, uh, one in uh, India and the other in the UK, which are separated by 
thousands of miles and um, also thousands, many thousands of years across time. Here are two more uh, very ancient symbols, um, one in Australia, 10,000 BC, and the other one from the Chumash Native American people in California, dated to about 100 CE. Here's another pair, one from Denmark and another from the ancient Pueblo people in what is now New Mexico. And then my favorite, uh, this pair of uh, petroglyph and painting, one from the Nazca Hills of Peru dated to about 500 BCE and has striking similarities in design and shape to uh, the classical Tibetan mandala, which dated to about 1300 CE here. So let's talk a little bit more about this idea of an archetype. Carl Jung observed that in nature, animals exhibit complex behavior patterns that are not learned, but instead unfold according to instincts present at birth. These might include the migratory patterns of birds that travel vast distances to warmer climates as winter approaches or salmon in the springtime that swim upstream for hundreds of miles to find their original birthing grounds, or honeybees that coordinate within their swarm to build an intricate hive with hexagonal cells. Similarly, Jung believed that the human mind contains certain archaic complex instincts for being and acting in the world. These instincts might include survival behaviors, mating rituals, ways of nurturing our young, as well as adventure questing and spiritual seeking. Jung referred to these deep-seated archaic human instincts as archetypes and believed that they reside in every human being as primordial images. To quote Jung, the primordial image or archetype constantly recurs in the course of history and appears wherever creative fantasy is freely expressed. In each of these images, there is a little piece of human psychology and human fate, a remnant of the joys and sorrows that have been repeated countless times in our ancestral history. According to Jung, archetypes are stored in the collective unconscious of human beings. To quote Jung, in addition to our immediate consciousness, which is of a thoroughly personal nature, there exists a second psychic system of a collective, universal, and impersonal nature, which is identical in all individuals. Jung called this second psychic system the collective unconscious and viewed it as a vast and timeless reservoir of archetypes inherited and passed down from one generation of humans to the next. Archetypes from the collective unconscious engender a similarity of human experience despite differences in culture and in time. Archetypes are expressed in similar symbolic imagery and in similar mythologies and folk tales around the world. Jung viewed the mandala as perhaps the most important archetypal symbol coming from the collective unconscious. The mandala in its entirety represents the wholeness of self, while the center represents the power of the self to catalyze insight and transformation. So the self is symbolized in the whole mandala as well as its center. 
A unique aspect of Jungian psychology is the idea that there are two centers of personality. The ego is the center of conscious personality, whereas the self with a capital S is the center of the total personality and includes the conscious, the unconscious, and the ego. While the ego is a little circle off the center contained within the whole, the self with the capital S can be understood as the greater circle as well as its center. In everyday life, we're prone to confusing our ego as being the center of the psyche rather than the self being the center of the psyche. Through the mandala, according to Jung, one intuitively recenters the psyche so that it is realigned with the self and with the greater natural order. Individuation is a very important Jungian concept. Jung described individuation as the process by which one becomes a whole person, integrating the conscious psyche or ego with the unconscious psyche that includes the collective unconscious of human culture. As infants, our ego is undifferentiated from the self, including the collective unconscious, and we embody an original primitive wholeness of personality. But gradually out of this unified state, our ego or sense of I emerges. And as we grow up, our ego increasingly separates from the self. We become conscious of ourselves as distinct from others and learn to develop our own talents, skills, and identity. However, archetypes from our collective unconscious are periodically activated by the environment and seep into our collective unconscious. They eventually break through into consciousness and offer us an opportunity to expand our personality by developing a conscious relationship with these mythic elements of the human experience. According to um, Dr. Edward Edinger, who is a really renowned Jungian, this process of bringing unconscious archetypal material into ego awareness and reestablishing the connection between ego and self with the capital S seems to occur repeatedly throughout the life of the individual, both in childhood and maturity. Indeed, the cyclical or better yet spiral formula seems to express the basic process of psychological development from birth to death. And this is one reason why Jung stated, I began to understand the goal of psychic development is the self. There is no linear evolution. There is only a circumambulation of the self. In his autobiography, Jung offers this reflection. My life is a story of the self-realization of the unconscious. It's interesting to note that self-realization is the term that's been used for centuries in yogic traditions and other Eastern philosophies to describe the recognition of one's identity with universal consciousness rather than with limited ego consciousness. As we've seen, mandalas clearly have ritual significance in many ancient cultures, including Indian spiritual traditions. However, Jung is credited with introducing mandalas to Western psychology and making use of them as a therapeutic modality. Jung studied mandalas extensively and associated them with psychological and spiritual health. In his early years as a psychiatrist, Jung worked at the Bogotsli Mental Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland. There, he discovered that mandalas appeared in the dreams and artwork of the psychiatric patients with whom he worked. 
Mandalas seem to emerge during periods of intense chaos and confusion and seem to have a calming effect. So he began using them as a part of treatment, believing that such use would hasten the healing process. Often at a point in his patient's treatment, Jung would encourage them to transition from talking to painting mandalas. In 1916, Jung began creating his own mandalas following a painful break from Sigmund Freud with whom he had collaborated for several years. Jung suffered hallucinations and depression during this period and he meticulously recorded his inner journey in images and words in a law in a large journal which came to be called the Red Book. This record of Jung's experiences served as a catalyst for many of his later psychological theories. This slide and the next five slides show some of the intricate mandalas drawn by Jung. The process of mandala making is explained by Jung as being the creation of a picture that develops spontaneously from itself, often totally independently of the maker's intention. To quote Jung, the pictures represent a kind of ideogram of unconscious contents. I have naturally used this method on myself too and can affirm that one can paint very complicated pictures without having the least idea of their real meaning. While painting them, the picture seems to develop out of itself and often in opposition to one's conscious intentions. It's interesting to observe how the execution of the picture frequently thwarts one's expectations in the most surprising way." End quote. Jung came to believe that the mandala was a pictorial statement of the psyche at that moment and a key to the process of individuation, the process that we alluded to in the previous slide. Temporarily retreating into a symbolic world provides opportunities for achieving integration of conscious and unconscious mind and spirit. Jung referred to this process as active imagination. Although he did not specify rigid steps in this process, in general, active imagination involves focusing on an intention or emotion, creating art spontaneously, and then reflecting on the resulting images. Regarding his own mandalas, Jung wrote the following. I no longer know how many mandalas I drew at this time. There were a great many. While I was working on them, the question arose repeatedly, what is this process leading to? Where is its goal? From my own experience, I knew by now that I could not presume to choose a goal which would seem trustworthy to me. It has been proven to me that I had to abandon the idea of the ego. Jung believed that the mandala was especially helpful in preventing or exacerbating psychosis as it provided a safe context where consciousness is symbolically protected from being split apart by the unconscious. He maintained that the very process of painting or drawing within a circular form was helpful in preventing such splitting and helped to integrate the conflicting psychic forces at work in his patients. Again, to quote Jung, the pictures differ widely according to the stage of the therapeutic process but certain important stages correspond to definite motifs. Without going into therapeutic details, I would only like to say that a rearranging of the personality is involved, a kind of new centering. This is why mandalas most appear in connection with chaotic psychic states of consciousness or panic. 
then they have the purpose of reducing the confusion to order, though this is never the conscious intention of the patients. At all events, mandalas express order, balance, and wholeness. Patients themselves often emphasize the beneficial or soothing effects of such pictures." End quote. Archetypal symbols and figures may appear in spontaneously drawn mandalas, indicating a struggle within the person between opposite parts of his or her personality. Reconciling these opposites was believed by Jung to heal and make the person whole. Once again, he believed that the creation of a mandala lends itself to this, quote, union of opposites, unquote. Jung said the following, if a union is to take place between opposites, like spirit and matter, conscious and unconscious, bright and dark, and so on, it will represent not a compromise, but something new. This union of opposites is not a rational thing, nor is it a matter of will. It is a process of psychic development that expresses itself in symbols. Jung viewed the union of opposites as occurring via the transcendent function of the self. And to quote Jung, by means of the transcendent function, it is possible to transform one's mental condition and thus arrive at a solution of painful conflicts. We find the courage to be oneself. Repeatedly, Jung witnessed in his own life and the lives of his patients that the experiences of the transcendent function changes the personality of the individual, opening the person to new levels of being and the renewal of life energies. Painful and tractable conflicts get resolved. They don't get fixed or disappear, but they're simply outgrown or transformed by a new insight, a new shift in perspective. Jung viewed the union of opposites as occurring via the transcendent function of the self. Quote, by means of the transcendent function, it is possible to transform one's mental condition and thus arrive at a solution of painful conflicts. We find the courage to be oneself, unquote. Repeatedly, Jung witnessed in his own life and in the lives of his patients that the experience of the transcendent function changes the personality of the individual, opening the person to new levels of being and the renewal of life energies. Painful, intractable conflicts get resolved. They don't get fixed or disappear, but they are outgrown or transformed by a new insight, a new shift in perspective. Jung viewed the center of the mandala as the symbolic location of the transcendent function. When drawing a mandala, a person in turmoil can intuitively tap into the self-balancing transcendent function as they symbolically draw their psychic contents in relation to the center. Jung described constructing a mandala as an expression of a self-healing process. He believed that the psyche maintains its own sanity and nurtures its own growth through the process of creating a mandala. According to Dr. Wilhelm, the mandala symbol is not only a means of expression, but works in effect. It reacts upon its maker. In his work with patients, Jung would often interpret symbolism appearing within the mandala. He used such interpretations as a bridge from the unconscious to the conscious. 
he encourages patients at the appropriate time in their therapy to learn to interpret their own symbols and thus use the mandala as a bridge from dependence on himself, the therapist, to greater autonomy for the patient. Of course, some symbols for a particular archetype may be unique to the culture in which they have arisen. Therefore, it takes a great deal of training for a psychotherapist to work with patients from different cultures. This mandala by Jung, probably painted in 1918, completes a series of 18 mandalas. As Paul Britsky comments, this mandala has the shape of an egg. It is vertical, pointing downwards, and looks like a huge cosmic egg floating in the waters of the unconscious. The motif of the egg suggests the idea of creativity and potentiality. It contains within itself a wealth of complex circular shapes reminiscent of fish spawn. Four streams or lines resembling umbilical cords evolve from the center and connect the internal shape of the egg with four outer points. The notion of becoming is symbolized by the egg shape, the spawns, the umbilical cord, and the movement of waves. We have here an image of the self with an interaction between inner and outer spheres. We see a kind of cosmology here. We're presented with a description of an inner cosmos that is connected to an outer macrocosm. The self then is not isolated, but includes within itself the substance of outer reality. So as Jung explains, individuation is not self-centric, but necessarily includes the world. While Carl Jung used mandalas extensively in his psychotherapy work with individual patients, it was Joan Kellogg who popularized mandala drawings as a form of art therapy that could be applied in a more objective manner to both individuals and groups. Joan Kellogg was an art therapist at the University of Maryland who became fascinated with Jung's work on mandalas. She began using mandalas in 1969, and for the next decade, she collected and classified thousands of mandalas from her art therapy patients on various inpatient psychiatric units. Building on Jung's ideas, she identified archetypal themes in mandala paintings that reflect ways of being and responding in the, way, in the face of change. She noticed that certain symbols, colors, and motifs were associated with specific life situations. For example, an upward pointing triangle or pyramid seemed to be associated quite often with new beginnings of some sort. The color red seemed associated with passion, libido, or life force. Because imagery predates language, culture, and even time, it may reflect instinctual or archetypal patterns that shape the unconscious ways that we humans respond to change. And being able to recognize the mythic or archetypal aspects of our life provides a way to discover and connect with our larger narrative as human beings. Kellogg identified a developmental sequence in which the designs and colors seem to unfold successively as one works through a particular challenge. She called this developmental cycle the archetypal stages of the great round of the mandala. We can use the metaphor of a tree to describe the development of our psyche over time. Our psyche moves from seed to sprout, to sapling, to fruiting tree, followed by disintegration, transformation, and rebirth many times over the course of our lives. Each time we return to a given stage, 
we experience a similar archetypal quality, but we arrive with new knowledge and competence. Kellogg refers to each of these cycles as different octaves and envisioned life as an ever-increasing spiral of octaves. Each archetypal stage is value neutral, but can be experienced positively or negatively, depending on our willingness to recognize and meet the developmental challenge. According to Kellogg, our psyche begins to traverse the great round of the mandala every time we begin incubating a new idea or project, developing a new part of ourselves, or taking steps to form a new relationship. The arc of the stages parallels typical developmental theories, for example, Ericksonian theories of ego development, but it removes the limited framework that ties particular struggles to particular ages. For example, for Erickson, the stage of trust versus mistrust is associated with infancy. According to Kellogg, the same conflict would occur at each new beginning encountered in life, regardless of age. In keeping with the union perspective on psychic opposites, the six axes of the great round demonstrate the continuum of experiences that relate to each stage. For example, endings and beginnings form one axis, as do struggle and transformation, and boundaries and disintegration, and so on. Like Jung, Kellogg imagined the center of the great round as the place where the individual intuitively feels the source of their power and accesses the transcendent function. What is above the horizon, an invisible line drawn between stage four and stage 10, tends to be more conscious or known to the person. Psychic information below this horizon tends to function adaptively below the threshold of conscious awareness. Kellogg's great round makes it possible to study mandala patterns more systematically among large groups of individuals. For example, Padash and colleagues examine mandalas drawn by medical students. Mandala-making workshops were offered to third-year medical students as a tool for cultivating self-awareness. Following the mandala-making, students completed a reflection exercise by writing a title, description, and indication of what this art meant to them. A total of 180 mandalas were collected and rated according to Kellogg's archetypal stages of the great round. Each mandala was first assessed according to compositional pattern and symbols used to determine a particular stage of the great round. Then the title, description, and reflective writing were analyzed for themes. If there was a discrepancy between the stage assigned to the mandala by the researchers and the stage assigned to the writing, then the stage assigned to the writing was used in order to honor the intentions of the participants. Stage six to 12 axis, this uh, struggle versus transcendence was the most prevalent stage with most students clustered in stage six, which was the struggle. Stage two through eight germination versus maturation was nearly as prevalent with most students clustering towards stage two of the axis. So let's take a closer look at the two main axes uh, that were represented by these medical student drawings. So that was the struggle and transformation axis, and then the germination and maturation axis. So stage six 
the struggle stage was a category with the highest frequency of mandalas. This stage reflects either a conflict or a balance of internal opposites, depending on how the individual approaches the situation. An example of conflict with internal opposites was described in a piece of artwork that was entitled Volcano. It's not pictured here, but it basically described an inner feelings of calm, which contrasted with surrounding violence captured by rocks and high temperature that could melt bones. The balance of opposites was evident in only a few mandalas, including the image that I've shown here, this uh, gray-blue circle. It shows a dynamic of positive blue elements and negative gray elements. The student wrote that amplifying the gray elements may induce frustration and fear, but enhancing the blue can impact me so that things turn out better. Demonstrating how struggle can lead to transformation, five images contain the themes of stage 12, transformation. One example included a bright flame amidst a chaotic background, as well as a bird in flight seeking a way to correct the faults of this world. Other students described hope in their artwork at this stage, including sunrise, with the student reflecting there's always hope Dawn will eventually come no matter how long is the night. Um, let's take a look now at the germination and maturation axis. Um, the stage two was the next highest frequency of mandalas. 24 mandalas actually pertain to this stage. The uncontained bubbling enthusiasm of the germination stage was described by one student as, I just came up with everything I wanted to express in my head and I don't want to be trapped in a circle. So I drew something outside the circle. And that's this little elephant dreaming up all of these bubbles of possibility. In contrast to the lack of definition and endless possibilities of stage two germination, there's stage eight maturation, which pertains to secure ego identity, individuality, and direct expression of feelings. An image of a person floating among many other bubbles was described like this. Each person is a unique individual. We live in our own bubble and have our own life intersecting with other bubbles along the way. And this is called Bubble Life. It was entitled Bubble Life, this artwork. Three of the images specifically referenced acquiring a doctor identity uh, when they were here in this uh, maturation stage. Another study examined the mandalas created by hospice and palliative care workers. A total of 60 such mandalas were collected and rated according to Kellogg's Great Round of the Mandala and compared to burnout scores as assessed by the Maslow Burnout Inventory. Stage six, which encapsulates struggle, was once again the most prevalent stage and was also correlated with the highest levels of burnout. Interestingly, stage 11, fragmentation, was the next most frequent stage. And individuals that drew mandalas in this stage either captured the negative sense of shattering or falling apart, or they could also approach it more adaptively. And these individuals uh, in their reflection exercises described their mandalas as the chaos which fuels creativity. So, 
Kellogg went on to develop a projective card test called the MARI that could be used even when people may not have the time, strength, or motor skills to draw their own mandalas. The projective card test involves selecting the most and the least preferred mandalas from a set of archetypal designs and colors associated with each stage of the great round. So in one study, researchers administered the MARI to 195 inpatients, 132 with cardiac disease and 63 with cancer. Both cancer and cardiac patients selected stage nine, that would be here, stage nine, the full bloom stage, most frequently as their preferred design. According to Kellogg, stage nine signifies accomplishment of one's goals and the realization of one's mission. Individuals select stage nine when they want to enjoy and preserve what they've achieved in life. As a result, they may be reluctant to change, let go, or adapt to the inevitable when faced with life-threatening illness. Now, stage 11, down here, fragmentation, also figured prominently in the choices of these cardiac and cancer patients. Cancer patients rejected stage 11, fragmentation, the most frequently. Interestingly, it was a little bit different with uh, the patients who had cancer. Those with cancer also rejected stage 11 the most frequently, but stage 11 was also their second most frequently preferred stage. So this is an obvious conflict. Um, it seems like they are struggling with this dilemma. Should I try to hang on to the good in my life and resist letting go? Or should I celebrate my accomplishments while surrendering to the illness and whatever it may bring? Cardiac patients did not seem to have this conflict. They clearly preferred stage nine and just soundly rejected stage 11. Apparently, they wanted to preserve their lives and didn't had no wish to let go or surrender. But for cancer patients, it seemed like there was um, more of a conflict about how to approach their uh, life-threatening illness. So I'd like to close with a discussion of mandala drawings from one of my own patients. Uh, I've changed his name and some of his uh, identifying information, but I've tried to preserve the essence of um, what brought him in for consultation with me. So this is Jason, a single 55-year-old accountant. He presented for consultation with me while contemplating a career change and also processing the news that David, his best friend of 20 years, had been diagnosed with advanced cancer. Jason describes himself as an introvert who has struggled with social anxiety most of his life. He wants to get unstuck from his current life trajectory, he says, but he isn't sure how to break out of his comfort zone. He's reluctant to share his struggles with his friend David, as he doesn't want to burden him amidst David's cancer treatment. This is the first mandala that Jason made in our therapy. As you can see, there's very well-defined concentric lines and circles, and this is consistent with stage five of the great round, which is titled boundaries. And this image really does speak to boundaries, defenses, routines for self-protection, like rings of protection of an oak tree, which may feel necessary for Jason as he carefully navigates work and social environments where he's unsure how to present himself. As our therapy sessions progress, Jason appears to relax more. He brought up a dream of being a passenger in a car that a friend is driving. The friend drives the car through a series of walls in succession, but neither of them is hurt. 
Jason does not feel scared during this process and decides to just go with the flow and had a sense of ease and trust about where the car would go, where the emotions might take him. Around this time, Jason described that he and his friend David went for a long walk on the beach, something they'd done many times over the years. They reflected on the immense changes in their lives, including David's diagnosis of cancer. After this day in nature, Jason felt renewed and grateful in the friendship he and David share. He expressed wanting to be a source of support to David while also being careful not to project his own wants and needs onto his friend. He also reflects that in the end, each of us is, quote, vast and unknowable, unquote, in many ways, because each person's inner life is so unique. He brought in the second mandala at this time, commenting that he had found it liberating to create it. This second mandala appears consistent with stage nine of the great round, which we've entitled as full bloom. Stage nine is a time of fulfillment and satisfaction. It reflects meeting an important commitment or goal, which creates a natural pause to experience joy in what one has accomplished. In this mandala, there's an overall softening of lines in contrast to Jason's first creation and no further need for the protective rings within the circle, perhaps signaling more confidence as well as openness to emotions and his inner life. The peripheral flowers you'll note, these peripheral flowers here, um, touch the central floral shape and all the floral images appear to be in full bloom perhaps reflecting Jason's sense of accomplishment and gratitude in creating his deeply meaningful friendship with David. At the same time, each of the peripheral flowers remain distinct, reflecting the unique inner life of each person. And this again is very consistent with stage nine. Approximately a year later, Jason's best friend's wife is also diagnosed with cancer. Learning this news, Jason feels worried about how David and his wife will cope with both members of the couple facing cancer. He describes feeling distractible and restless and is often compelled to take long 10-mile hikes in nature. In our session, he says that his life seems less worthwhile somehow than David's. He denies any intent to harm himself, but he's been thinking, why am I here? He believes that it would make more sense if he'd been the one diagnosed with cancer instead of David, so that David would have more years to be present to his wife and family. He feels frustrated that he can't do more for David. So around this time, he draws this mandala. And this third mandala appears consistent with stage 11 of the great round, which corresponds with disintegration. Stage 11 reflects the chaos, fragmentation, and overwhelm that often accompanies loss or unresolved existential anguish. In Jason's mandala, the main circle is drawn with a harsh blood red line, perhaps reflecting anger with the situation. The interior is filled with chaotic black snake-like squiggles, invoking a sense of decay and destruction that cannot be contained. While this stage is painful, the expelling of psychic toxins may open the door to transformation and meaning making if it's a stage that Jason is actually able to navigate. 
Several weeks later, Jason had a dream of being at a party. In the dream, he's mingling in a dimly lit room filled with smart people. He feels aware of his identity, like an observer in a lucid dream, rather than being a character caught up in the dream events without any control. He feels somehow in the dream that he has choices to make. He recognizes that things aren't necessarily inevitable. After having this dream, Jason shares the following mandala drawing. This mandala has a series of black and yellow curves, as well as comma-shaped elements and a large black dot in the off-center. The dynamism and comma-shaped elements are consistent with stage three momentum. Stage three pertains to a powerful moving forward sensation or drive, but without clear knowledge of the end. Unexpected events await one's discovery in this stage. In discussing this mandala, Jason associates the bright yellow with freedom and describes this yellow color as an important and unlikely choice for him, in contrast to black, which he associates with suffering. We explore how freedom and suffering may coexist, how there may be choices related to suffering. Jason associates the comma-shaped elements with embryos. We reflect on how he has started to re-engage in his friendships after a feeling of suspended animation. We also touch on Jason's dream of developing a new vocation in the arts. So archaic images such as the mandala predate culture and words, according to Jung, and comprise the primary language of the psyche. These images are pictures into the archetypal forces and dynamics in everyday life. Such symbolic images are so much a part of us that we respond to them intuitively and not entirely consciously. At different moments of life, certain symbols are more active and present while others seem more dormant. Through drawing mandalas and reflecting on our experiences through the images that emerge, we may arrive at new insights that are otherwise limited by a focus on literal outer events. Jungian archetypal psychology reminds us to pay attention to symbolic content from the unconscious so that we may put personality development of the ego into proper perspective and recenter our identity in the wholeness of the self. So I'll conclude with this list of articles and books for people who may be interested in learning more about Jungian psychology and the therapeutic use of mandalas. Thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.